I'm Nick Harcourt for AKG Stories Behind the Sessions with Robert Margolet. Robert is an electronic music pioneer, recording engineer, and producer. From his early days working with partner Malcolm Cecil and friend Robert Moog, he's been at the forefront of synthesizer development and emerging music technology. His recording credits include work with Stevie Wonder, the Doobie Brothers, Randy Newman, Ravi Shankar, and Devo. And by the way, Stevie Wonder's hugely influential album, Inner Visions, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Robert, welcome. Happy to be here. I'm so glad to meet you. Thank you for being here. Before we get to the records and the sessions behind a couple of them, can I ask you about your first Moog synthesizer and your relationship with Robert Moog and how you connected with Malcolm Cecil to form the group Tontos Expanding Headband and develop the Tonto synthesizer? It's a long question off a short pier, <laughs> but uh, uh, I was in the throes of producing my very first feature film called Chow Manhattan. And I heard a Moog synthesizer being played in a nightclub called Cerebrum, which was a, sort of a psychedelic nightclub. This is the end of the 60s. I heard it and I said to myself, Robert, because that's my name. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, I think I could use the synthesizer to make a score for Chow Manhattan. Okay. And uh, I listened to it and I was immediately compelled by it. What was it about the sound of it that really got you? I don't you? know. I felt totally compelled by it. And uh, I, the minute I heard it, and realized that I could do it myself. I didn't need a whole bunch of guys in white coats with pocket protectors and a bunch of scientists running around. But this is an instrument that I could actually play as a musician and begin to understand how music and sounds are made by virtue of vibrating electrons in space. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I ran headlong, arms spread wide into the into the maw of electronic music and Tonto, the original neo-timbral orchestra. I uh, left my film business behind. I ended up at a small studio in, uh, on Broadway called Broadway Recording Studios. And I set my synthesizer up in his control room. And I started making music for his clients. And then media came on the scene, big time studio. 57th Street and 7th or 8th Avenue. And it so happens that they hired a new person to become their head of maintenance. But maintenance, you understand, in those days, analog equipment, the minute you turn it on, it started breaking. So you always had to have a full-time guy there to make sure that things were running right. Malcolm was that person. So at night, when I started working on the first piece called Aurora, and he listened to it, and he said, I said, you know, Malcolm, you could show me how to run this console because all the consoles were one off. No one had a, like a Neve or a, a Soundcraft or a, a brand. Everybody was building their own studio, their own consoles. They didn't have multi-channel consoles. So everyone was doing it their own way. We ended up making an album for Herbie Mann who came at night. He was doing some jazz stuff in, in Studio B, which was downstairs. Herbie went down and worked with his band, and he came up. So I wielded the, the synthesizer out into the space with the spotlights and the ear-level monitors, and uh, we played him Aurora. And he said, you guys want a record deal? 
And he said, sure. And he said, here's $5,000. Uh, we'll do a record. And that record turned out to be zero time. Uh, Tonto's expanding headband. We finally had a name, thanks to a little peyote and me and <laughs> a friend's studio a few years before. Yeah. But uh, that record made a lot of noise. And uh, it was Memorial Day weekend in 1972. It was a Sunday, and there was a guy in the street yelling up, Malcolm, Malcolm. And we, the windows were open. It was, you know, it was the holiday. It was very quiet. And there's uh, Ronnie Blanco, friend of Malcolm's fellow bass player, standing there with Stevie. We didn't know who he was, but I could see, looking out the window, I could see he had his, our album under his arm. And we invited him to come in, and he came in, and they started jamming a little bit. And he said, you want to really see Tonto? And he, we took him downstairs to Studio B. We had moved the synthesizer already and uh, put his hands all over it. And we explained what it was. And uh, he got up a few sounds, and he started to play. And he said, hey, there's something wrong with this thing. I'm playing all these notes, and we're only playing one note at a time. And Malcolm says, yeah, you know, the synthesizer is more like a saxophone or a trumpet. It takes your whole body and your embouchure and the whole feeling and sensibility just to play one note on a saxophone to make it really sound soulful, that you had to have your total energy into it. And I said, yeah, and the synthesizer is like that too. You only play one note at a time. We had one synth that was actually... Tonto was actually six synthesizers all tied together. How many modules were there that made up Tonto? Oh, I don't know, but we're going to go and fool around with it up in Calgary in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to play it one more time. Right. So you did, uh, the first record with him was Music of My Mind. Right. And then its follow-up was Talking Book, which had massive hits on it, Superstition and You Are the Sunshine of My Life. But you understand that they weren't, we never really... Uh, Recorded for record, and it wasn't Stevie's lawyer wouldn't come in and say, Vagoda, Steve, we got to make a record now. What, uh, what are you going to write for it? When we started working with Steve, we created an archive or a library. We just recorded songs as they fell out of his head. Right. I think we had maybe, by the time we did Music of My Mind, I think we must have had 50 songs, 40 or 50 songs in the library, all in different places in development. And Steve would go through and we would pick the songs. He would pick, I want this one, I want that one. And then we'd say, Steve, you can't do that. And he'd say, why? He says, because that's enough for a double album. You know, you got to cut it down a little bit more. So it was always a process of winnowing and deciding what was going to go where. But those songs were not recorded in order for album, music of my oh, mind or talking book or right. whatever. They were. It was a library. So there was like a whole bunch of songs yes. that were then pieced together into the albums. Yeah, and then we would choose Got which it. ones work together because now you can sequence an album on Pro Tools, boom, 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 with a couple of keystrokes. But we wanted to, a lot of those records, you know, the songs are like cross-faded one into another. And uh, for that reason, we had to make sure that the songs would work together key-wise and tempo-wise as well. All of that was done by hand. There was no computers to sample and be sample accurate we had to really use these on talking book i mean that with that record uh i was totally uh immersed in it 
As a matter of fact, I did all the color photography for the album cover. Uh, I shot that, and I shot the in, inner sleeve. Oh, wow. So, because I came as a filmmaker originally. Right, so, right, right. So it was felt very natural. That was high in the hills of Hollywood, just under the Hollywood sign at 6 in the morning. So the other funny story about that is that Ola Hudson did the costumes, the African costumes. She's the mother of Slash. So it was all kind of really interesting people wow. being around at that time. But it was all just the three of us, for the most part, in so, the studio. So by the time you got to Inner Visions, where were you guys at as a team? We were totally the three of us, Steve, Malcolm, and me. There were very few other people involved. And when we moved to the West Coast, uh, we ended up at the first studio we ended up with was a place called Crystal. Uh, the studio still exists. It's a few blocks from my house. Oh, wow. Strangely enough, it's an old post office. But it was a wonderful place, and we settled there. Uh, and we lasted about a year working there. Uh, but we had to leave because the studio was also used by people like Joni Mitchell and all the sort of the folk rock crowd that sort of inhabited Laurel Canyon, right. so to speak. And they were getting really restive because, Steve, when we were in the studio, we took up the whole place. We sucked up all the oxygen. So we had to find another place to work. And that turned out to be the record plant. Gary Kelgren said, I'll build the studio exactly the way you want it. We liked that. So we went, ended up building the most fabulous recording studio you could go in that studio and just have a party and record it. It would go gold. And the interesting thing about that studio was that um, another person who was working at the record plant at the time was the chief engineer, was a guy named Tom Hidley. That John Storick and Tom Hidley, Gary, myself, and Malcolm actually built that room together. It's the only time the two giants of acoustics, Tom Hidley and John Storick, who built Electric Lady for Jimmy. Right got together and helped us build that room. And that room had quad monitors in it and not stereo because we were getting ready then to have QS, which was Sansui's quad in vinyl, which was a miserable failure. But we had a quad control room and a wonderful studio with, with the synthesizer at the back of it. And we started to make music there. What the quad monitors really served, served for us was the fact that we could use it for performance, where we could get Steve to occupy the same space as the music. We could put him in the middle of the control room and have the clavinet behind the background vocals behind us, a clavinet over here, a clavinet over there, the drums in the front lead vocal here, and the background vocals behind us. So instead of viewing the music inside a proscenium arch like this, we were immersed in the music. It was the first real immersive mixing. We couldn't deliver immersive music to the public because uh, we couldn't store spatial information electrically. But we could really use it in the studio. And many of those recordings that we did with Steve and onwards from that time, from about 1972 onwards, were a lot of the recordings were made like that in the control room where we worked in an immersive space with the music. So, yes, I was fooling around with immersives. The first 
immersive mix that Malcolm and I did with Steve was superstition in quad. It never made it to the public because people wouldn't buy the, the cartridges, the special cartridges, and it was really sort of dicey about how much separation you could get. But they tried it, but it became an amazingly powerful creative tool in the studio. I remember as a consumer when, when it came out and they tried to make it fly right. and it just didn't at the time. But it's ironic, really, that all these years later, we've now figured out how to create that surround sound with Dolby Atmos and um, the technology has caught up with the, the, the concept, right? As a matter of fact, I just mixed uh, Whip It, another band I worked with called Devo. So let's jump to Devo. Um, Devo arrived and changed a lot of stuff. Um, it was a different music, obviously. Not really. Devo, the guys are really uh, very much. You got to understand that Devo also, like Stevie, were highly uh, socially motivated. What kind of music did Devo really like? They worshipped Stevie Wonder and Prince. Was the record really that different? Yeah, maybe the instruments were a little bit different, but my approach in the control room was the same. And they understood that, that I brought that Stevie Wonder. I was no longer working with Steve, so it was a different time. But uh, that record was sort of a monster's head on an R&B body because I used the same approach that I would have used with Steve to uh, record them in the control room. I brought them into the, the only person who was in the studio was the drummer. And we recorded the drums like with Steve in stereo from the drummer's point of view. If you listen to a Stevie Wonder record, those four records, you'll see the hi-hat comes up on the left. <clears throat> the reason the hi-hat comes up on the left is the only person who really hears the drums in stereo is the player. You walk 10 feet from the drums, it's mono. Right. So Steve played left-handed. We wanted to give Stevie the same perspective in the headphones as he had when he was playing because it would help him orient where the drums were, give him a spatial relationship. We used the same approach uh, with Devo. Alan Myers was a hell of a player, too, I might add. Steady like a rock. And uh, we got everybody in the control room. I put the mix up in quad in the room, in the control room, and we cut a lot of that stuff live for that reason. That was the best thing that ever happened to me was the discovery of quad in the control room, the surround in the control room. I've been fooling around with that stuff since, uh, I guess, 1970 when they built that studio, and we built that studio at the record plant. That changed my life forever, because I ask you the question, how do you know, how does your brain know where a sound is coming from? It's a very powerful force, especially if the sound comes from behind you and you can't see it to relate to it. Or if you see somebody singing on the screen there and their sound comes from behind them, how disorienting that could be. But, you know, we're primal creatures we're hunter gatherers where we you know we want to know if there's prey behind us you know there's all kinds of interesting things going on in our brains about where a sound is coming from yeah it's only recently with dolby atmos for example that we could finally deliver it electrically to a listener 
but I was using quad in the studio since 1972 for that reason. Interesting. So the album you're talking about is uh, Freedom uh, of Choice. Freedom of Choice, yeah. Um, That's the only album I did with them. And it had Whip It was the, was, was the hit. Um, before the cameras started rolling, we had a conversation uh, a day or so ago, and you told me it's one of the favorite records that you've worked on. Yeah, it really, uh, as a matter of fact, I just remixed uh, Whip It once again in Dolby Atmos, not 10 weeks ago. Wow. So the music, that's, that record's 50 years old. We must have been doing something right. That's making me feel real old when I, when I well, hear you say that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up, and I'm 83 years old, so. You know, as you look back on such a, an, an extensive career and the eclectic group of people that, that you've worked with, the artists and the music that you've, you've helped create, do you have a favorite project? I mean, is there anything that, sticks out and you're like oh yeah but that one well with stevie for me it was living just enough for the city living for the city which i thought was really indicative of something very heavy and major socially as well and a lot of anger about it and uh, steve really writing something meaningful for it we invented sort of like having the little radio dramas inside new york just like i pictured it that was Stevie's older brother who voiced that. Ten years, Johanna and Vagoda, Stevie's lawyer, voiced that. I love that. So it was kind of homemade. We had yeah. to spin everything in and by hand. There was no sampling. The things that the records had in common was they're very spare. They're very few instruments. It's not a lot of overdubbing on Devo. It's not a lot of overdubbing on Steve. Steve was one person, so we had to do overdubs for him because he he, he was a one-man band the devo on the other hand were two or three players at a time or four players at a time but there was not waterfalls and big string pads or any of that stuff all those records stevie's or devo's all were very very simple only a few voices the only things that were really polyphonic were the keyboards like the piano or the roads or the clavinet but all the other instruments, because of some, most of it was tanto, was all monophonic, one sound at a time. So Steve would do two, two voices at a time, and Malcolm and I would adjust the instrument and get things to fly and surprise Stevie sometimes because the sound would change under his hands. But Steve really got it. And the boys from, uh, from Akron really got it and still got it there on their last final tour as we speak yeah that's the 50th anniversary first 50th anniversary tour yeah. before we wrap it up i just want to spin things back a little bit um to when you were a kid and when you first became aware of music what was the first music that you purchased what was the first record you bought well my background in music really was classical music i grew up listening to bach brahms and beethoven uh, you know when i was home from school or wherever I was, my sister was practicing four to six hours a day, every day. When I found the synthesizer, I found a world that was totally new, totally different, and totally without any rules. But you'd been prepared for it by yes. your... I have a classical sensibility. Exactly, yeah. So when we're working with Steve or Devo, I'm thinking about how a string quartet's put together, four voices, pop record, four voices, drums, bass, 
guitar and keyboards, four voices, and then sing music on top, singing, right? Pop record. But it's still the same thing. It's like a, like a uh, string quartet, like a Beethoven string quartet. Every part very sep, very straightforward and very well wrought in its, in its, in its, in its harmonies and the way it moves. Pop music is the same way. And with Steve and stuff like that, there, no, there were no waterfalls. We didn't need to make big uh, pop uh, producer stuff for Devo, for example, where the producers would always interject their own color to the band. You could always say, oh, that's the so-and-so's record. I can hear his style over, over and above the artists. To me, that's not the way it's supposed to be. A good producer is a man behind the curtain. He knows what has to happen and he has to get the artist to perform to the limits of their potential. That's the job of the producer in pop music and also in classical music. They're not that far apart. It's great meeting you, man. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Robert. Shine with me, kid. I'll make you as famous as the Beatles. <laughs>